How do you like that? It's nice. So we're starting a new series um, today that's going to take us through the whole month of September, uh, looking at the Trinity. And there's a few reasons why. I'll share one. Uh, I think that with everything that's gone on in the last six months in our world and everything that we could be talking about, there's nothing more important than seeing God clearly for who he is and what he's like. And there's something so complex, mysterious, yet beautiful about understanding the Christian doctrine of who God is and how he has revealed himself as God in three persons, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do is today is going to be kind of an intro to all of that. We're just going to solve all the mysteries of the Trinity today. Okay, and then for the next three weeks of the series, uh, we're just going to have some fun looking at Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because those aren't complicated either, all right? So that, that's what we're going to do. Now, most of us in this room, this is what I was thinking about a lot, is most of us in this room would, would subscribe to the Trinity if we are followers of Jesus. If we're Christians, we'd say, yeah, I believe, it's a belief that I have, that, or it's a doctrine that I know, that God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but not many of us on a regular basis, even daily, experience the triune community of the living God. We don't know how to experience Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We've never been taught how. That actually changes our relationship and how we commune with this divine community of Father, Son, and Spirit. So we are going to do some deep kind of like brain hurting th thinking throughout this series for sure. But I don't just want us to accomplish that. I want this series to be something that we actually experience. Because if there's anything true about the Trinitarian nature of God is that we are invited into relationship to experience him as a community of self-giving love. And that's what the gospel makes available to us. So it's very important that we get a felt sense of why it even matters. And it matters. It matters deeply. And it's something that's been debated. There's been conferences held about it within the first couple centuries of Christianity because it already was a hot topic of like, wait, one, three, three, one. Like even in the second century, that didn't work for them, right? So there was conferences and dialogue and debate around this. We have 2,000 years of church history to back up the constant arguments around this. And we're going to figure, figure it out for September in 2020, okay? So that's, that's, that's our, our job. But there's something complex about this. And it's by design. There's something complex and mysterious about the nature and character of God as he reveals himself. But it's also very essential to the gospel. It's essential to all of Christianity. And really boiled down, what we have to understand is that the Trinity itself isn't just a secondary doctrine. That kind of like Christians will, yeah, well, if we agree to disagree. It's actually a primary doctrine because Christianity is literally built on the Trinity being the Trinity. That Christianity is made Christianity by the Trinitarian triune nature of who God is. And theologically it's very important, but also for orthodoxy. That orthodoxy, right teaching. That if we are not triune in our relationship to God, we are, in a, in a very serious way, not Christian. And the Trinitarian nature of God separates Christianity and its orthodoxy from the cults. It separates us from heresy 
And it's, so, it's, so it's very important. But many of us, and this is not a fault of ours, many of us have never been brought into understanding the Trinity and experiencing this community of self-giving love. So, although I joke about us figuring this all out, we're not going to. And that's the beauty of it because I think there is something truly incomprehensible yet knowable about this God. That this God isn't just incomprehensible and distant and complex and mysterious, although he is all of those things. But he's also relational and personal and knowable. And, and it's very humbling. I think this week as I've studied, the last month as I've studied this, it's been so humbling to realize that I can't fit God inside my three and a half pound brain. Right? Like it just, and if I could, he wouldn't be much of a God. Are you with me on that? So there's something throughout this series that there, there should be a, an awe as we approach God. There should be this complex mystery, yet one that draws us in because this God is knowable. He reveals what he's like. And he does it through the work of the Trinity. And so we're going to spend the next month just unpacking what that looks like. And I want us to use this season to really experience that well. So each week, regardless of whether our city groups meet or not, there's going to be exercises made available to you for us to really sit in the reality of experiencing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as a church, I really do believe the more that I've prayed and thought about this, I think this is a divine appointment. I think this is, this is a time for God to, to remind us of who he is. Especially as we come out of the last six months of, of feeling a lack of proximity, not only with each other, but with God himself. And if we don't understand who God is, we cannot know him. We cannot love him. And we cannot be changed by him. So, it's a big deal. It's very, very important. So that is the gist of this series. We're going to move fast this morning. We're going to get through a lot of things. But all I want to get across this morning, we're not going to dip into Father, Son, or Spirit yet. But what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to show you why the Trinity matters. Why it matters at all. And I will just say apologetically, as like a conversation with culture today, I don't think our biggest challenge is understanding the Trinity. I think our biggest challenge is fighting the natural human urge to define God however we want. To define God for ourselves in our image. And whatever that is. It's like, well, you know, he's just like a loving, like, daddy. Who, like, he's my sugar daddy who just gives me stuff. Or, or just like, you know, he's a God that's never mad because he's love. And, like, we do, we do whatever we want. We just create a God that doesn't care about morality. He doesn't care about ethics. He doesn't care about image bearers. He doesn't care about justice so that we can just have this little God. That's your biggest concern. That's my biggest concern. Because as John Calvin said, our heart is a factory of idols. It just pumps out gods to worship. And if it's not the God of the Bible, and it's not the God of Revelation, and it's not the God of human history, it is not God. So that is our biggest temptation to go through this series, is to create a God in our image that suits us, our preferences, and suits our cultural moment. God is not subject to our cultural moment. He's not subject to your personal preferences and desires or mine. He's not subject to how we think we were born. He's not subject to our socioeconomic status. He's not subject to where we live on this planet. He is subject and object in and within himself. So, through this series, we're invited to be awestruck by that. His self-sufficiency. 
his all-knowing power, his love, his creative work, everything about him that is true and only of him. That's the invitation of this series. Are you excited? As you can tell, I am, but I'm more just excited that I'm out of my bedroom and like here. <laughs> just kidding. This is what's exciting to me. I think culturally, we have to understand that this is going to be also a missional kind of equipping series. Because in a, in a post-truth, post-modern, post-Christian city like ours, when someone says, I believe in God, I want to guarantee you one thing. They are not talking about the same God that you are. And what we do is we do a great disservice to the mission of God if we think our mission of the as the church is just to get people to believe in God. And then we never do the work of describing and defining who this God is and what this God is like and how we can relate to this God and what this God has actually done. So it's not enough to just know creator. It's not enough to just know kind of spiritual or cosmos or energy running around out there with Skywalker. Like that's not enough. It's not because it doesn't save us. And my greatest concern for us as the church is that if we don't do the hard work of leaning into something as essential as the Trinity, we can, and this is very, very scary, but we can go through our entire life thinking about God, praying to God, worshiping God who isn't there, who isn't real, who doesn't save. I got one. Yeah. We need to know the God who saves. Because if there's anything that we need, is we need rescuing. If there's anything that the world has shown us in the last six months is that they don't have the answer of who and how we can be rescued. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has been eternally rescuing humanity. And that is all this God is going to be doing for the rest of eternity. And you and I, if we know this God, we're going to spend eternity awestruck by this God. And that's what this series is going to do for us. So there's also an equipping aspect to this. There's also a very pastoral aspect to this. I saw some scary surveys this week about people's view of God. And in the West, most people do believe in some kind of God. I know like new atheists are like, God is dead. It's like, well, actually, God's pretty alive. His name's Jesus, right? But culturally, God's still very much alive. Most people believe in a God. But that's not enough. Because when you start to describe that God, that God is not personal. That God does not get in the way of human history and experience. Does not intervene in any way. Does not reveal what he's like. Or have anything to do with Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's, it's that God. So we can't settle for just God and then fill in that God word with whatever you want. We need to do better. And this is extremely important. A.W. Tozer famously said, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. So if you see God as an angry, cold, distant judge, that changes you. If you see God as busy, unapproachable, unreachable, that changes you. If you see God as just creator and then he kind of steps back and let things do its thing, that changes you. Or if you see God as just not there or not real, that changes you. So in very real sense, this changes humanity. It changes our human nature. To understand who God is is to understand who we are. And there's not a person on this planet with breath in their lungs who's not asking that question. Who am I? 
What am I supposed to be like? What is my purpose? What is my identity? And we need to be able to know the God that we're pointing them back to. That's really important because if you asked me, or if I said to you, I love my wife so much. Raquel, just, you know what? My favorite things about her is her fair skin, her, her blonde hair, and her blue eyes. I just, oh, I love her. First of all, you'd go, it's not your wife. You don't know her. And because you don't know her, I don't know if you can love her. Like, like the, there's a key connection between knowledge of someone and love for someone. Knowledge of someone and relationship with someone. So it's possible that we can have a view of God that is entirely incorrect and needs to be aligned. And that might happen for you during this series. I pray that it does. But for those of us who maybe do feel like we have a clear view, what I do want is I want this series to drive us deeper into experiencing what this God is like. And last, by way of introduction... You guys knew that this sermon was going to be long. First week back, it's just like, I got to preach, right? You knew that. So don't, don't look at me like that. Put your mask above your eyes if you're going to look at me like that, okay? Last point of introduction is that the Trinity is essential to Christian belief and living. And here's why. Because Christianity is not primarily about your sins being forgiven. It's not primarily about having your life changed. It's not primarily about living a moral life or being happy or nice. Christianity is primarily about knowing God and experiencing him. And that's why the Trinity matters. That's why the Trinity matters because it changes everything. To know God, to love God, to experience God, to grow in our enjoyment and delight of God is the point of everything Christianity claims. It's not just doctrines. It's not just theology. It's the word of God. It's God himself made flesh to save and rescue each of us. There's an experiential relational element to this that is so, so, so important. So I want to start a book that I've really been enjoying as I've been gone through this series. I want to start with this quote. It's going to set the stage for the rest of our morning. But Michael Reeves writes this in Delighting in the Trinity. Watch this. Who God is drives everything. What is the human problem? Is it merely that we have strayed from a moral code? Or is it something worse, that we have strayed from him? What is salvation? Is it merely that we are brought back as law-abiding citizens? Or is it something better, that we are brought back as beloved children? What is the Christian life about? Mere behavior? Or something deeper, enjoying God? And then there's what our churches are like. Our marriages, our relationships, our mission. All are molded in the deepest way by what we think about God. I think that just summarizes so beautifully how big of a deal this is. How essential this is. So, how do we do this? How do we explain the Trinity? Well, I have good news and bad news. We are going to explain the Trinity. But, historically, every time we have tried to explain the Trinity, we have landed in heresy. <laughs> So like, it's, it's a game we can't win, right? Like the, 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 the cards are just stacked against us. Every time we try to describe the Trinity and be like, it's kind of like heresy. Okay, like right away. Like a, here's the lane. It's very small. It's just like, well, he's kind of like, and then we're, we're right in the ditch. Okay, just, so 
I'll give you a couple examples because it's important. And I'm going to send this out this week because it's fun. I was going to put it up, but I'll send it out to you. There's a really hilarious satirical video um, about two, like, monks talking to St. Patrick. And St. Patrick is trying to describe, it's a cartoon, trying to describe the Trinity. And every time he does it, they just call him out because it's heresy. And a couple of the examples are, we hear this, to try to describe, like, the threeness and the oneness of God. We're like, well, God's kind of like water, H2O, where it's like gas form, liquid form, and solid form. Just kind of, and right away, it's like, that sounds helpful, except we just wandered into modalism. Where God is one, but he appears in three forms. He appears in three modes. He kind of has different hats that he wears. It's like a Clark Kent God. He just kind of like runs into the, the, the phone booth, comes out as Jesus. Goes back in, comes out as the Holy Spirit. Well, what happens is that stresses the threeness, but it, it's at the expense of the oneness. It's at the expense of the divinity of all three persons of the Trinity. Um, a modern version of this would be certain brands of Pentecostalism, where you kind of hear them as oneness Pentecostals, where Jesus is Jesus, and then, but he's also like appeared in different forms throughout history. That's uh, modalism. Secondly, you've heard, heard like the uh, three-leaf clover. It's like God's like a three-leaf clover. It's like one part of the clover is like Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We just wandered right into partialism, which, which argues that each person of the Trinity makes up basically a part of God or contains a third of the Godness, right? And we've wandered into that. That is also a modern belief that is aired. There's also tritheism which Mormons believe. It's really just polytheism. But it's the belief that there is Father, Son, and Spirit, and they're all separate gods kind of networked together. They kind of do stuff together sometimes, but then they kind of like do their own thing because they're, they're really three separate distinct gods. That would be Mormon teaching. That's actually what Muslims believe that Christians believe as well. So many of the debates and dialogue that happen between Christians and Muslims is arguing actually about the oneness, that we agree on God as one, not three. So I spent a lot of time having those conversations. And last, and we could keep going, but I'll just give you this one, Arianism, which is where Jehovah's Witnesses would land and, and other cults, is that Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it's kind of like the sun, where there's the sun, big star, and then there's heat and light that come out of the sun. And what happens there is it's the belief that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that Jesus and the Holy Spirit proceed from God, they're not one with God. So you end up with, again, a just, just, just broken relationship between it. So, with all of those wrong ways to describe it, and some of you have used those ways, just feel the conviction and don't use them anymore. Here's how we describe it. Ready? We're going to turn to the Athanasian Creed. And the Athanasian Creed is a very early document that came out of a series of councils and conferences that the church held in the 300s because they had to figure this baby out. Because there was all these kind of diverting concepts and descriptions of who God is and was. And so they came up with this creed after the Council of Nicaea. And it was really led by a bishop in Egypt, Alexandria, by the name Athanasius. And that's why we call it the Athanasian Creed. And here's what it says about the Trinity. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. I want you to remember both those words, person, essence, okay? For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. 
But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal and their majesty co-eternal. Okay, you got it? Yeah. Okay, good. So just, I mean, we just pray, we'll close, send you out in your Trinitarian-ness, right? Now this is beautifully written, but still mind-boggling, right? There's still something kind of to, to work through. Now here's the key I'm going to give us for the rest of the series on how to unlock this. And I told you to pay attention to the key words of person and essence, okay? Or essence, being, and person. Those are different. So here, being, essence, makes you what you are. Being makes you what you are. But person makes you who you are. So here's the example. What am I? What is my essence? What is my being? Well, I am a human being. That's a description of what I am. But who am I? Well, I'm not just a human being. I'm Dustin. Now, personhood comes into the equation. So what I am describes my essence, my being, my makeup. But who I am describes my person. With me on that? We got it. Good. All right. That's going to be really key throughout the series because even right now in this room, personhood and being are not the same. Essence, what we are, and, and, and being, uh, who we are, is not the same. In this room, we all share what we are. We're all the same being. We are human beings. But we are not the same person. We're all distinct people. So do you see how those two hang together? I think that's the best way for us to kind of at least try to understand and wrap our head around the threeness and the oneness of who God is. Because it's his being, his godness that describes what he is. Unlike us because he's God. He's matchless. He's really in, unfathomable. He's un, not understandable because of what he is. He is God. But who is he? Well, he is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He has personhood. He has personality. There's different roles. There's a distinction in responsibility within the triune community of Father, Son, and Spirit. That's pretty fascinating. That we can't just stop and talk about God as one. Because all over the pages of Scripture, we see God acting out through his personhood, through Father, Son, and Spirit. Next week when we talk about the father, we're going to deal with a little bit of like the maleness imagery too of father. Why not mother? And we're going to kind of unpack a little bit of that. There's been a lot of arguments recently by feminist theologians for why can't we say mother God. Okay, so we're going to look biblically at what that means and what that looks like. It, I'll give you a hint. It's not a trick of the patriarchy, okay? Down with the patriarchy. Sorry. That was me. So, where you and I are one being in one person... God is one being in three persons. And the reason why we can't understand that is because there's nothing like him in all of creation. And that's exactly the point. Nothing like him at all. Uh, I love Psalm 113.5 who says, Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and earth, and he raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. Those are contradictory statements. Gods don't do that. Gods sit enthroned and tell minion humans what to do. But right there, this God doesn't do that. This God enters in. This God sees the poor, sees those who are cast out, sees the hurting and the wounded. In ancient Near Eastern time, gods didn't have time for that. 
They're too busy running around having orgies, making baby gods, right? They didn't have time for, for you know, human beings. It just wasn't a thing. Parents, you'll have to explain that word later or not. But God is one in three persons. <laughs> Forgot it was family Sunday. God is one being in three persons, okay? Not three beings in one person. That would be like split personalities. Not three gods in a community as one, but one God in what he is and three persons in who he is, okay? Now, there's lots of implications of that that we'll come back to over the course of this series. But really what we want to get at is that they are the same and fully united in who they are, but distinct in how they relate to one another, and even distinct in the role that they play in the work of creation and redemption. We see them playing different roles. And we're going to talk about that throughout the series. But what we see at the same time, they're not contradictory. We see unity and distinction at the exact same time. Not unity and division. Division's different. But we see unity and distinction. A shared essence, but distinct in role and relationship. Amen? For you visual learners, here's a quick diagram that actually wanders into heresy as well, but I'm not going to tell you how. But here is a, <laughs> a visual representation of how to understand a little bit of that relationship. Where the Father is God, right? We're talking about essence, being. Is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Son, Jesus Christ, is God. But they are not each other. So there's ways that they are distinct from one another because the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Spirit and the Spirit is not the Father. But they are God. That's their essence. That's their being. But they are different persons. So just lock that in. Just lock it right in there. You'll never be confused again. Uh, this, by the way, if you want to Google this and find out the history, it's called the Shield of the Trinity. It's been around for a long, long, long time. There's other diagrams that can be helpful um, to represent the Trinity, like in the graphic of the series, for instance. The title, the next slide. Yeah, that's another way to diagram the fact that there's a oneness in being, one continue, continuity between Father, Son, and Spirit, but distinction, okay? So... Here's all this means for us. Whatever is true about God the Father is true of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and vice versa. There's no org chart, right? There's no subordination. There's no boss God telling other little non-boss gods to do stuff. But perfect unity. Perfect community of self-giving love. And we're going to talk about that a ton across the series. Now before we look at a couple verses and apply some things, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. We don't find the word triune. We don't find the word trinity. Sometimes that's used to argue that it's not biblical. However, as we learned in our scripture series over the summer, just because a word is not literally there does not mean that scripture doesn't teach something. Amen? So it comes, it comes back to how do we approach scripture? How do we understand scripture? How do we take it and distill it to find its meaning? So here's the thing. The word trinity definitely isn't there. But the triune God is everywhere. The oneness and threeness of God is everywhere. And it happens on the first page in the first verses of the first chapter of our Bible. Okay, watch this. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was empty, nothingness, and darkness covered the waters. That's chaos. 
and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and God said. Okay, now watch this. Look at this. In the beginning, God. Then we see the Spirit of God hovering, and we see God saying, God speaking. Now here's what's really interesting about this in the original language, is that the Hebrew word for God is Elohim, which is actually plural. Now in English, we don't put gods because now we're running back into tritheism or, or polytheism. But what we see is that in the beginning, God, plural, created singular. We see a plurality in God doing one thing together, fully united. And right there, we see God, creator, majestic, father and creator, giver of all life, we see the Spirit of God doing the work in and through creation, and we see God's Word. Now, what do we know about God's Word? Well, John tells us much later in John 1, 1, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And nothing that was created was not created in and through and for the Word of God. Then John goes on and says, and that Word put on flesh full of grace and truth, the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So we see God's word at work in the very first verses. We see God's spirit at work in the very first verse. And we see God as creator, majestic father, giver of life in the very first verse. It's right there. And it's amazing. And then a few verses later, we know the story. In chapter 1, verse 26, this God says, let us make Human beings, man, humanity is the word, right? So let us, plural, which is strange to say. Some have, some have argued that it's like a royal queen language of let us have tea. But that was later, right? Like we're talking about ancient Hebrew now. But let us make singular humanity, singular, in our image, our very essence, male and female, plural. Track with me. Let us, plural, make singular, humanity singular, as male and female, plural. There's something about the essence of God that is one, yet plurality. That humanity is not just reflected in man, man. Humanity is reflected in and through male and female. That there's simultaneously oneness, a shared essence, a shared being, and distinction, distinct persons. Amazing. So right from the very beginning, this God who is one, who works out in plurality, creates humanity who is one, who then expresses itself through personhood and plurality. Are you done philosophizing? Is that fun? I think it's fun. Fast forward to the New Testament. We see the same thing happening in the baptism of Jesus. And we're going to talk about this when we talk about the Son of God. But it's like, how is Jesus talking to himself? Like he's God, how is he talking to himself in heaven? How is he God in flesh? But he, right, like you've heard some of those things crop up. Right, we're going to deal with all of that. But watching Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, verse 16. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, Jesus is there in flesh. The heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God, distinct from himself, descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven, distinct from himself, this is my dearly loved son, because he's the father, who brings me great joy, and with him I am well pleased. The entire trinity, right there. Last example, 
In 2 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul signs his letter off and says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And it's really cool. Now that you've seen it once in this signing off, you're going to see the Trinity everywhere. In the book notes, especially of the letters. In their introductions and in their conclusions. They're always giving these benedictions that invite us into the Trinity. Not just Jesus. Not just Father God. Not just the Holy Spirit. But into the Trinitarian community of love. So, let's get out of philosophy for a second. Now I'm going to push it at you and I'm going to give you three reasons why this matters. Three reasons why this matters at all. Number one. There's only three. You don't have to, I know it. I was like, he's only at number one. That's, that's what that was. There's only three, okay? There was seven. Ask my wife. I made them three because of my wife, okay? Number one, you and I cannot experience the gospel unless we understand the Trinity. <laughs> like I, that's, I mean, I just can't. It is, it is unbelievable. We cannot understand or experience the gospel without the Trinity. Why? Well, because the gospel itself is the outworking of redemption through Christ by the Holy Spirit according to the will of God the Father. The Trinity literally is the gospel. The gospel literally is the Trinity. The gospel is the work of the Trinity. And you and I, now you'll see it everywhere, you can't look at creation the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, or our future hope and promise without seeing the Trinity. Because it's his idea. Because it's his plan. Because it's his will. And it's his way. And he gets his will. And he gets his way. And he gets it done. And that's the gospel. And that's why it's good news. Because it's not your way. And it's not my way. It's his way. But we're invited into that. J.I. Packer, late great Puritan theologian, said the Trinity is the basis of the gospel. And the gospel is a declaration of the Trinity in action. I love that. that. The gospel literally is just a declaration of the Trinity at work. It's like, so how do you describe the work of the Trinity? The gospel. The gospel is Trinitarian by nature. It's the work of the Father. It's the work of the Son. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Christian salvation literally comes from the Trinity, happens through the Trinity, and brings us home to the Trinity. Such a big deal. And throughout this series, I want this to be a watershed moment for us as we're invited into commune and relate to the Trinity. I'm going to give you two verses to show you this. And then we'll do the last two points and close. Ephesians 2.18, watch this. Now all of us, you and me, who are not like God, can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. Now if that's not a Trinitarian statement of the gospel, I don't know what is. You see that? That it's the work, perfect work, fully united, fully one, of Father, Son, and Spirit that brings you and I away from what we normally and naturally would do in our sinful condition and brings us home and redeems us and rescues us. Next, next example, Galatians 4. When the right time came, because he had a plan, it's his plan from the beginning, wasn't a backup plan, wasn't that he got caught by like, oh, I guess I should do that now. From the beginning of time, 
God sent his son, born of woman, subject to the law. God sent him, Jesus, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, we're going to talk about this next week, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Father, Daddy, Abba, the Trinity at work again. And now church, I'm telling you, those are two examples because of time. It is everywhere. This perfect, redemptive dance of the Trinity, bringing us into communion and community with him rescuing us and pursuing us through the persons of the Trinity. Everywhere. That's number one. Cannot understand the gospel without, um, without understanding the Trinity. Number two, we cannot and will not understand the mission of the church without an understanding of the Trinity. We will not. We'll have a different mission. We'll go on some other mission. We'll make the church about being nice. We'll make the church about soup kitchens. We'll make the church about... A fancy this, whatever this is on Sundays. We'll make the church about personal salvation, about me and Jesus. We'll make it about all sorts of things that it's not actually about. In Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus gets his disciples in front of them and leaves them with this mission and says, go. Go. Now that's amazing that to reflect this God, we have to go. Why? Because this God is a sent God. This God is a missionary God. This is a God that pursues broken people. Doesn't wait for broken people to get their act together and come to him. He's a God who goes. So if we look like our God, we're going to go. That there's going to be a pursuit of brokenness, walking into dark places to be light. There's going to be a pursuit of mending brokenness because we're going to go. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, you see that? Everyone sees that? Of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not in the names, not just in the name of Jesus. Not just by the Holy Spirit, not just because of the Father, but in the name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Church, he has one name, he has three persons, and we need to know how to relate to Father, Son, and Spirit if we are going to go out and actually experience vital Christian mission to the world. We need to understand him. We need to understand his heart. The God of the Bible is a missionary God. You and I are sitting here because he is. You and I are sitting here because he pursued you and I. And our call is to go and pursue others who don't know this God. Not any God. Not no God. But this God. That's our mission. And we'll see this in why we look at the Holy Spirit. We see that God, Jesus repeatedly over and over and over again. God sent me. God sent me. And then Jesus promises his disciples, I'm going to go away. I'm going to go. Right? And then I'm going to send who? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit equips the church and sends the church. So it's this never-ending beautiful cycle of sending, of sentness, of a missionary work. And Jesus in John 17, 18 says, just as you sent me, Father, I send them. And that's you and I. You and I are the them. Okay, so that's number two. We cannot understand the mission of the church without an understanding of the Trinity. And number three, and finally, I don't think we can understand how to pray if we don't understand the Trinity. Prayer is where our knowledge of God becomes an experience of God. You with me on that? Prayer is where we actually relate to God. I know we can relate to God in lots of different ways and we like to try to. But the test of our relationship with this God is our prayer life. Nothing else. Nothing else. And prayer is the language of relationship that we have with God. 
Communication with our God is of chiefest importance in how we relate to God. He does care how we approach him. He does care how we speak to him. He does care how we worship him. He does. But to understand him is to understand the Trinity. And without a Trinitarian understanding of who God is, it's not that God's not going to hear our prayers. Don't hear me saying that. God will hear our prayers even if we pray weird ones. Right? He, he, he's looking out for our kids. I mean, imagine I did that with my kids, right? Unless you call me, sir, father the greatest, I will not listen to you. Right? Like, that's not God's posture. That's mine sometimes. It's like, <laughs> but, but not our God. That's not how he is. But there is something about experiencing him and experiencing the fullness of his God nature. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here's, here's funny, funny, funny. Here's a funny. You hear people pray sometimes and you're like, they start their prayer and they're like, Father God, thank you for dying on the cross. And you're like, okay. I mean, he, he gets you. Like he understands what you're saying. But father, the Father didn't die on the cross. Or you're just kind of like, you know, Jesus, thank you for sending your Son. You know, it's like, well, Jesus is like, well, no, no, I, I'm the Son. The Father sent me. I got you. I got, I'm glad you're thankful that I came. But, like, no, right? Or you hear the Holy Spirit, please just fill me with your spirit. Right? So you're like, <laughs> the Holy Spirit's like, no, no, but I, I am the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to fill you with a different one. Right? Like I, so it's not that God is not going to hear our prayers and respond. But I do think experientially on our end, our prayers being Trinitarian prayers actually draw us in to experience him. So here's some homework. Pay attention to how you pray this week. Some of you are the Father Gods, Father Gods, Father Gods. Some of you are the Lord God, Lord God, Lord Gods. Some of you are the Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Right? Some of you are Spirit, 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 Spirit. And, I, and again, God hears our prayers. Okay? He is good. He does hear our prayers. Even when we pray monotheistic prayers that are not quite Trinitarian. But here's what I want for us. I want you to pay attention to how you pray because it does change our experience of relationship with God. And when Jesus teaches about prayer, and we'll look at this in the series, but when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he teaches us to pray to our Father in the name of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. That changes a lot, doesn't it? Doesn't that change a lot in how we approach God? That we're approaching him as Father in the name of Jesus, meaning one with him, that our name, it doesn't matter because we're in him and he's in us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the one that infills us and gives us the words to pray, even when we don't know how to pray. That's beautiful when we understand the impact of the Trinity on prayer. So, we're going to worship. And as a way to get into worship... There's a really famous prayer by John Stott, the late theologian. It was just called the Trinity Prayer. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Stand with me. Throw your masks on. <laughs> That's weird to say. And we're going to pray this Trinitarian prayer together. And then we're going to worship and sing and celebrate our Trinitarian God. And here's how it goes. Let's, let's read it together. Heavenly Father, I worship you. Oh, no, no, no. no like, we're going to say it. Like, we're like saying it together. 
you know, like praying, like we're praying together. Okay, ready? I know you guys miss this. Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you, Savior and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, sanctifier of the people of God. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy upon me. Amen. Let me pray for us and let's celebrate. Father, we do come to you in the name of Jesus by your Holy Spirit because you've made it possible for us to do so. Through your work, you have made us sons and daughters. You have brought us home. You've given us a new name. You've given us a new identity. You've given us a new power to live by. And I just pray that you would use this month especially to remind us of who you are. That we wouldn't just see this as doctrinal. Just see this as nitpicky theology. But we would see this as essential because we would see it chiefly about you. Father, we come humbly we come because we know you because of what you've done for us through your son, Jesus. And we ask, Spirit, that you would convict our hearts this morning, that you would renew our minds, that you would change us from the inside out, and that our lives would be full of celebration and worship in a world that is looking for it in other places, that we would make it only and always about you. We love you. We need you. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, amen. amen.